0: From the 809 Restaurant and Lounge in the heart of Inwood, New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air. It's where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home, what we affectionately call, Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we are turning our spotlight on local writer, Alan Sidransky. Alan is an award-winning writer of novels and short stories who focuses on the personal experience of everyday people faced with extraordinary circumstances. As a member of a family ravaged by the Holocaust, he is determined to tell the stories of refugees and survivors he's known who have triumphed over oppression. His stories range from Hitler's Germany to Soviet Russia, from Trujillo's Dominican Republic to Castro's Cuba, to the struggles of two peoples in the Holy Land and beyond. He is the author of the Forgiving series set in Washington Heights and the Dominican Republic, which has been described as a mystery wrapped in a history wrapped in a love story. A.J.'s debut novel, as he's called sometimes, uh, is in the series Forgiving Maximo Rothman, was selected as a finalist for Outstanding Debut Fiction by the National Jewish Book Awards in 2013. His novel Interpreter is the first installment in a new Justice series with a second installment due in 2022. We are thrilled to have him here today on this Artist Spotlight episode. Alan, welcome to Inwood Outworks On Air. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, um, it's great having you, and uh, everyone has been affected differently by the pandemic. Uh, I think that's the easiest way to say things. Uh, how did it affect you and your work? Did the did you find the social isolation allowed you to focus, or was it paralyzing? Or how, how did you how, how, how did you or a little bit of both? Uh, a little bit of both, yeah. Um, it's interesting,
1: you know, what effect the pandemic had on both my ability to write, and my ability to uh, promote a new novel. So. Uh, my most recent novel, The Interpreter, was released on the 28th of March 2020, which was a few days after the lockdown. And um, unfortunately, you know, uh, I, I don't believe that um, book sales, I mean, it's, it's kind of empirical now. But book sales did not proceed the way that people initially thought it would. Uh, uh, the New York Times had an article recently about you know how, how the pandemic affected book, book sales, and it was quite uh, on point. Um, people did not read as much as was expected. People were pretty much glued to the television. There were two things going on. There was a, a pandemic, and there was also this bizarre election. So there was not a lot of reading. But on the other hand, um, what, the, uh, what the pandemic did provide for me as an independent uh, writer and independent author is that I was able to reach uh, audiences I might not have reached previously. And the reason for that is that, like most authors, I do book talks. And uh, prior to the pandemic in the, as my wife calls it, the before times, uh, you you had to travel to where the readers were. So it pretty much limited you uh, to being about within 100 miles of where you were. Uh, it was unusual for an author of my stature to be flown out to LA for argument's sake. Uh, uh, most of my book talks were done here, uh, you know, in the New York, greater New York area. And occasionally I would go down to Florida and do a week of book talks. but. What the uh, what the pandemic provided was a shift to Zoom, which allowed me to talk to audiences all over the country and also in Canada. So I was able to uh, to do book talks with people in California, Texas, Florida, Portland, Oregon, uh, Toronto, up in, in Ontario. And this broadened my reach tremendously. And it did help to pick up sales for the interpreter. At the same time, I was in the middle of release, re-releasing Forgiving Maximal Rothman. I had gone to a new publisher, and I wanted all of the books to have a uniform kind of look. So I had released the first two books in the Forgiving series previously, Forgiving Maximal Rothman and Forgiving Mariola Camacho. And I was about to, to release the third, Forgiving Stephen Redman, which actually released in January. And this way, we re-released the first two and then released the third. So it was kind of uh, a similar type of pattern where, um, You know, we were we were held back a little physically by the um, uh, pandemic, but it did provide me the opportunity to
0: reach out much in a much farther geographic sense than I would have otherwise. Well, I think you've done admirably well being so prolific in getting the word out, what you can do, right? You do what you can do, right? Exactly. And, and I was curious if the, if the Zooming and, because uh, like the book signings that aren't in person, uh, like were people, like were you like sending people copies of books to the mail signed? And, uh, or, or, and were you able to reach new audiences, uh, let's say, uh, in places you wouldn't expect that would be receiving you? Okay, so
1: that's a very interesting question. So, in terms of reaching out, Zoom is a very different experience than a personal book uh, type of event. So, personal book events, they kind of fall into different categories, as do the Zooms. When you go to do, uh, whether you're doing it on Zoom or you're doing it in person, when you go to do a book event, you're either talking to an audience who has or has not read your book. So, they're very different kinds of audiences. So, for argument's sake, when I go to speak to an in-person audience, or a Zoom audience where the audience has not read the book, the discussion tends to be more about the particular um, sort of f- issues in the book and the, the more broad-ranging general uh, themes of the book than when I meet with a book group, which tends to be a little smaller, where everyone has read the book. In a, in a book group, the uh, first of all, there's no spoilers, which is, you, know, you have to be careful because these are mysteries and thrillers, so you don't really want to give them away. But um, you, do, you do have to uh, be careful about you know, giving anything away. But uh, what I find is that when you go to Zoom, the difference is that you're working on a shorter time frame. Um, when I go to see groups, uh, they usually schedule it for you know, a loose hour. But tr- truthfully, those, those book events tend to go anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, if it's a good audience. it it doesn't depend on whether they've read it or not. You know, if if the audience works, I don't just say, thank you, goodbye. I mean, we continue talking until they're ready to stop. On Zoom, it's an hour, that's (laughs) it. People do not have the mental energy to wrap around Zoom for more than an hour. And the truth is, is I, I also do webinars as part of my job. You can tell how things are going by watching the attendance on the bottom of the Zoom. If at 45 minutes or 50 minutes, it starts to, dro- it starts to drop off, that's
0: a sign. Wrap it up. I think everyone's learned that in the pandemic. Yeah. That's a hard, fast rule, I think. Yeah,
1: it absolutely is. So Zoom, it's a different, it's a different experience doing it on Zoom. In terms of sending uh, books to people, that's, that's been difficult. You know, What we found is that we've, we sell more e-copies, but we sell fewer um, print copies because yes when people come in person they want the book with the signature but it's very hard to do that i mean there are websites that will provide um the ability to deliver a signed book but the truth is that it becomes expensive because of the cost of shipping
0: right well you've written not one but at least two series of stories uh forgiving maximum rothman was one we've mentioned before uh where you carry not only the voice of its character, but explore variations of the thriller genre, Uh, it can be quite difficult to find your voice as a writer. Uh, So looking back at your work to date, uh, it's incredibly consistent, I have to say. A a large focus of it is on the Jewish experience through a kind of like Norse style that has a lot of hard factual truths buried in the story. Um, So let's do an origin story on you. Going back to the beginning, when you first picked up your pen, we'll just say, because we're of a certain age, right? Right. And um, can you share what in your personal life uh, prompted you to tell these captivating stories? Well, okay, I, I guess I'll start
1: out by saying that I had always wanted to be a writer. And I'll tell you a couple of quick tales with respect to that, you know, uh, I was kind of a born storyteller. And when I was in the third grade, um it came i don't remember if it was a winter vacation or christmas vacation but um we came back from vacation and the teacher wanted every student to tell what they had done on vacation so being as my name starts my last name starts with s i sat in the back of the room
0: because you know, i'm right there with you sims, okay, sims i get it.
1: that's how it was in those days yeah. you know it wasn't this kind of navy pamby sit wherever no. you want you, next to your friend you were told you said yes right. ma'am that's right. And you had to fill out a little card. You know, I forget what they called those cards, but there was a uh, Murphy cards. You had mm-hmm. to fill out a Murphy card. And this is where the teacher kept the Murphy cards and you had to sit in your spot. Right. So they get to me and you know, the cl- people had gone to Florida, they'd gone to Mexico, they'd gone st- skiing. And they get to me and where was I I was at my grandmother's house for five days, you know, with my sister. And so I I can't tell that this to the class. So I got up and I said, you know, I, went with my family to Disneyland and gave a very, very uh, uh, complete account of our trip to Los Angeles. And about two weeks later, my mother was at a a PTA meeting and the teacher came over and said to my mother, how was your trip to Los Angeles? And my mother looked at her and said, what are you talking about? What trip to Los Angeles? So clearly I was a born storyteller, but uh, I did not really start writing in earnest until I was uh, past the age of 50. I had spent many years in the real estate finance business, and um, so for me, it was a lifelong dream to come to be a writer. And uh, in terms of why I write and why I tell stories, well, I, I really, with, with giving proper credit, I have to give the credit to a friend of mine who's also a writer, who's, and, and what she said to me once is that, you know, she actually phrased it as a question, do I, do I feel this? the need to write does it have to come out of me and the answer is yes i have to write so as per your previous question did i write during the pandemic yes i absolutely have been working on a couple of different novels uh manuscripts uh and the need is there for me it's 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 extremely uh important it's like breathing you know i have to sit down and get the story out of me does the story work in my head yes the story works in my head for long periods of time it has to percolate there for a while Uh, And while I'm writing it, I have to stop and think about it. And that's very important to my process. So the question is to why is this important? Because to me, uh, I feel that uh, it's important for people to understand the experience of those who have faced uh, these extraordinary difficult times, and who are completely in an unexpected fashion. I mean, whether you're talking about, um, you know, Hitler's Germany, or you're talking about uh, uh, you know Castro coming to power in Cuba, or if you're talking about life in the Dominican Republic under Trujillo, you're talking about a very similar experience. I mean, you know, these are people who have to figure out how to, how to proceed, how to get, how to get through this problem. And my feeling is, in general, that fiction, which is why I write fiction, and I've been asked this many times, why not write, you know, nonfiction? Why not write memoirs? My feeling is that fiction puts the reader someplace that other forms don't. That when you read properly written, well-written fiction, you are in the character's head. You are feeling the same emotional experiences that the character is feeling. And that that should help you to really understand the circumstances under which the character is struggling. And that's a lot more important in terms of connecting the reader to this far-off experience than, for argument's sake, a history book, or a nonfiction book that recounts facts and dates and times, or frankly, even a memoir. Because fiction tends to be broader. And I I think that when we're talking about today's readers, and we're talking about things that happened 50, 70, 100 years ago, it's really, really important to give them this means to connect with the character and connect with the experience,
0: because they don't have firsthand knowledge of that experience. I think you touched on something very interesting that I think. I wanted to make sure our listeners uh, kind of identified to flag it for a second is that it's not so, I mean, the content is king, don't get me wrong, but I think it's important to uh, highlight this how the storytelling, the craft of storytelling, um, because if I were, if I were to categorize your work, which I will, uh, all in all, 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 in all um, it would be safe to say you write historical fiction. Yes. You know, it's, a, it's you're a historical fiction writer, which is great. And I wonder, my question to you, is that, and you touched on it, but I want you to expound a little more, if you will. Uh, I wonder if you feel there is a freedom to it that allows you to have the duality of using the framework of real-life events and subject matter, obviously, uh, accompanied with a unique story that's coming from you that provides a bit of safe distance for the reader.
1: Okay, so that that that's an interesting... Question Um, I I think that I'd have to say first of all that for me in many respects. It's cathartic so Specifically, uh, let's talk about forgiving Maximo Rothman, which was my debut novel So first of all, why do I write about? Jewish characters and Jewish experiences because that's my character my experience. It's the world that I come from Um, At the same time The question is, you know, how much of a writer is in the writer's characters in terms of fiction? Well, the answer is that the writer is pretty much in, to some extent, in every character. There's a little bit of you in each character. And, you know, that's why, you know, for writers, there's this sort of, running joke about how the characters live in our heads. And if we weren't writers, people would just say we were crazy. So um, the, the characters live there and they percolate in you and you, they become like a friend. So first of all, when you finish writing a book and you have to write the end, it's kind of sad, you know, but uh, getting back to forgiving Maxwell Rothman, you know, I grew up in a family um, where uh, of my four grandparents, three of them lost 90% of their families. Their extended families, and and some, of, and they're also their nuclear families in, uh, in in the Holocaust, and so this was an ever-present thing when I was growing up. And you know, it, it's interesting because unlike for the child of a direct Holocaust descendant, my experience is a little bit different because this these are the brothers and sisters and parents and nieces and nephews and cousins and friends of my grandparents, but they were they were ever present, and. At the same time absent and so uh, you you know the the story i often tell people is that in my my, we lived in a two-family house with my mother's parents and so in my grandparents apartment which was on the first floor there was a long hallway that went from the front door all the way down to the kitchen and the rooms were off on the right so in this long hallway there were all these photographs that were framed old photographs And there were photographs of my grandmother's family and my grandfather's family. But my grandmother's family had come here in the 20s and 30s, and so they all lived within five blocks of us. And as I always tell people, you always had someone to play with, and you always had someone to fight with. So um, it was a very immigrant kind of experience to grow up this way. And um, but my grandfather's family, uh, they only existed in photographs and when you're little you know well you know who are these people that's grandpa's brothers and sisters oh so you get a little older and well you realize how come grandma has brothers and sisters but grandpas are in photographs and well they died in europe and then you get a little older and you ask well you know how did they die in europe and the answer is they died in the holocaust what's the holocaust well You know, it was when the Germans came to kill all the Jews, and that's a little confusing. And then you sort of learn a little bit about the Holocaust from, you know, the world and Hebrew school and whatnot, and you start to put two and two together. And it becomes, I don't want to call it a burden, but it's something you live with. It's not a burden, it has never been a burden to me. It's, if anything, it has been a, a beacon for, to, to, to demonstrate to me how vigilant we need to be in the world to prevent this from happening. It's, it's not just a matter of it happening to Jews, it's a matter of it happening to anyone, and so sadly that it has happened so frequently in the 75 plus years since the end of, or the official end of the Holocaust. So for me, um, and there's a lot of me in Forgiving Maximal Rothman, Um, I needed to tell this story because I needed to be able to reach readers. So first of all, with respect to Forgiving Maximo Rothman, it's also important to understand that I had this one uncle that my grandfather's brother who survived and the way he survived was that he escaped from Europe to the Dominican Republic to a place called Sosua, which many people Jewish and Dominican are not aware of because it's really, it, it was a footnote in the, in the story of the Holocaust. Uh, make a very long story short, uh, under the uh, agreement through the Avion Conference in 1938, Trujillo agreed to take up to 100,000 Jewish refugees. Only 854 refugees actually arrived in Sosua in, in the couple of years prior to uh, the beginning of the American entrance into the war in 1941, but those 854 uh, people did survive. and. I did a lot of research, and I knew a lot about this because I was very close with this uncle. But what I realized was, as I w- sat down to want to tell this story, uh, was that the story of 854 unhappy Jews with their wool clothing, it, waiting to come to the United States in you know during World War II, would not carry a novel. There have been several nonfiction books, histories written about it. I can't. You know I've read them I needed to read them but you know it does not draw in a reader in the way that a reader can relate to the experience that my uncle had going from being a businessman in in Czechoslovakia to being a farmer in a jungle so um, I really wanted to tell this story but I had to come up with a structure to tell it and what I, I had moved to Washington Heights in 2004 with my family and I came to realize, as well, I used to call, you know, you call it, you know, upstate New York. We call Washington Heights, uh, SoSua North. Uh, so, it, it, and and it had a lot of, of that going on. And I had become, uh, I become involved in the local community, and I really wanted to tell this story because I felt it was a really, really important story for people to to tell. That it wasn't just a tragedy of gas chambers. That in fact, this was a story where uh, two very desperate groups of people came together and learned to help each other and live together in this very, very remote place in the Dominican Republic. So when I wrote this book, it was cathartic, because I had done much research over the years, personal genealogical research, to find out what had happened to my uh, aunts and uncles. And this gave me a way to tell their story. And there were moments in this, when writing this book, when I wept, because it was, I was finally able to established something in a very abstract way that had eluded my grandfather all, all of his life. For us, it's very important that, a per, that when someone dies, we have the ability to visit the grave once a year. My grandfather never had that. He, he, couldn't, he had not one grave to go to, and he felt very incomplete. This is a part of our culture that's very important to us. This is sort of tending to the dead. And so when I wrote this book and I wrote the chapter where Maximo finds out what has happened to his family, I felt like finally my aunts and uncles had, they had a memorial, they had a memoriam. And what's interesting is that in Israel, there's a museum that's dedicated to the Holocaust. It's called Yad Vashem. And Yad Vashem literally means a place and a name. So finally, my aunts and uncles had a place and a name that is memorialized forever,
0: or as long as this book remains in print. Well, I, th- I, th- I think it's incredibly important to have that, uh, and I think it carries through that, sen- that not just the sentimentality of your own you know, heartstrings, uh, but I feel like the, the storytelling I said within that framework that I was trying to get before is that I feel like you provide the, the-, the reader a nice journey to a- take like a safe harbor to understand history, to understand that like, even though they're fictionalized characters, there's a lot of truth and there's a lot of um, identity uh, oh, that, that, that you put in through your own family and friends and relatives that bring these characters to life, which I think is pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, I want to touch you. on um, and talk a little bit about your current offering, uh, The Interpreter. Sure. Uh, so the story centers around a 23-year-old GI, um, Kurt Berlin, you got to have a GI named Berlin. I mean, what? I mean, that was his I, real
1: name. I know, it was but a mean, real. But Kurt I'm, but I'm
0: saying, like, that's like going to central casting. There, that's just you couldn't plan that any better. Um, who had he? So he left Austria uh, via kinder Kindertransport uh, right. right before the Second World War, and uh, he's recruited by the OSS to later return to Europe uh, to aid the interrogation of the captured Nazis. Um, that's the setup. Uh, but if that wasn't enough. Uh, because we're being good here, I, I'm just going to say he finds a deeply personal connection um, through his assignment, uh, and I'm supposed going to say, it's quite a thrilling ride because I want the listeners to go out and read the book, uh, but I wanted to hear where did the compelling idea for this story come from? Okay, so as is the case in Forgiving
1: Maximum Rothman, the basic story that is presented in The Interpreter is true. So. I, I want to take just a quick step to the side, which to say that Kurt Berlin A was a, a real person. He was married to my mother's cousin, and um, he, you know, he, he had this incredible story of escape, which I heard, you know, you know, when I was a teenager, and I was always amazed by this story. So, without giving away too much, I will tell the potential readers that the story of their escape is is basically true, and and he and his parents did travel through Nazi-occupied Europe on forged German diplomatic passports. They had to parade around as Nazis in order to leave Europe. The way that this was funded was by them having smuggled large amount of gold out of Austria to Belgium just prior to the beginning of the war. And the story about the smuggling of the gold is very unique because, and I will only say this, it involves girdles. So, and it was absolutely true. So I was really, I was looking for the next book and I wasn't sure which idea I was going to work on, but Kurt was already like 86 or 87 years old. And my wife said to me, you know, you might want to do that next because who knows how long it'll be around. So he had three daughters. He's no longer with us. And he had three daughters who I'm very close with and they gave their blessing to this. And again, it is a fictionalization of their story only in the respect that it uh, does not follow, or there's more to the story than than just their escape. So um, what's important to understand about the telling of this tale in The Interpreter and what I really wanted to accomplish harks back to what I said a little earlier, which is why fiction is so important. Excuse me. What I wanted the reader to get out of this story was that when they, um, when they read the chapters where Kurt was the interpreter for the interrogation of a real-life Nazi SS officer by the United States uh, intelligence services, I wanted them to feel the experience of the, what he was experiencing, having lived through the war and now having to be nothing more than a vessel for the, for the translation of this man's crimes to the English language. And I, I really wanted the, sort of the mental stress, the for one of another term, the effect of PTSD mm-hmm. of this experience to come through to the reader. Now, I'm not to pat myself on the back, but many readers have said to me that I, I, I really hit the nail on the head and that they had to put the book down so if you had to put the book down then um i did my job
0: readers you have your instructions if you don't put the book down you're not doing it right okay exactly now
1: (laughs) i would add two other very quick points to this one is that um, as as a writer what i want to accomplish is i want to be able to change someone's mind to give them a new message When the book was in pre-publication, we had done advanced reader copies to go to reviewers. My publisher is located Black Opal Books. uh, And yes, there's a website, lots of great contemporary uh, genre novels. Um, There's a website you can go to, uh, it's Black Opal Books. Uh, They're located in Oregon. And my publisher, uh, she has a number of children, and one of them, her son-in-law, came over for a visit. And as she described him, he's a big redneck. And that's her words, not mine, I don't know the guy. And he liked the cover of the book. And he said, Mom, can I take a copy of this? And she said, sure, knowing full well what was in there. And two weeks later, he came back and said, you know what, this changed my view of the world. And if I can do that once, then I have accomplished everything. I don't need to sell one more copy of the book. I have have changed one person's view and one person's mind. And that is what is so important here, because there are literally millions of these stories that need to be told. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's interesting it's listening to you and hearing about the interpreter and the lengths people go to and the travels to the Dominican Republic and obviously America. It's like, Would you say that in some way the core of your story center around the immigrant experience? Very much so.
1: Um, you know, as, as someone who has lived among immigrants all my life, um, I felt myself more like an immigrant than an American. I mean, I, I was born here and my parents were born here. But I can tell you with no question that my son, who is now 26, is the first generation of my family that feels completely American. Wow. And so, yes, I lived in this way and I was raised in this way. English was not the first language in the house I grew up in, Hungarian was. Um, and I have always sought out friendships from similar people, similar who have similar type experiences. And I think it's really important today, with the political situation the way it is, that we understand and open ourselves to the immigrant experience. The, and you know, I know this is really sticking my head out and I'm not looking to sticking my neck out and I'm not looking to insult anyone or question anybody's politics. Time. Okay. But One of the things I talk about in terms of the uh, interpreter is the experience of the Kindertransport. So, and this really happened. Kurt, I mean, in the book, Kurt is 16, but in real life, he was 12 when he was sent on the Kindertransport. And tens of thousands of Jewish children in Germany and Austria were saved through these Kindertransports. And And their parents sent them knowing full well they would likely never see their children again. And the vast, vast majority, well over 90%, never did. So what I say to groups when I discuss this book with them on Zoom is, um, and I'm watching for the drop off. I tell them that um, you know the experience of this German Jewish mother standing on a platform in Frankfurt or Berlin or Vienna or Dusseldorf, sending her child onto a, a, this train with a smile, holding back the tears, knowing full well that they'll they'll likely never see their child again, is. In essence no different from the Central American mother who has managed to scrimp together a hundred single American dollar bills over a period of 10 or 20 years from tourists and takes that money and puts it in the hand of their child their 15 year old child and says go to America and get to America and you'll bring me later knowing full well that they will likely never see their child again and it is imperative upon us to open our heads and our minds a little bit, to understand that despite the fact that yes, we have a legal immigration system and B, uh, there are all kinds of issues with that, that we need to be fair and we need to understand how desperate people can get. Living in a, in a failed nation state is not in any essence any different than living in a fascist state. It is untenable and you can't survive. So you have to go somewhere and along that line, you know, I always maintain about the immigrant experience that it is a life long conflict for an immigrant because most immigrants, they have this idea of what life is going to be like when they go to the, to, to the next place, which is usually America, and they're desperate to do the, to, to this to improve their lives and the lives of their children and families. And then when they get here, they see how different it is than what they expected. And what they long for and yearn for is to go back to the place that they lived, where they came from, their home. And for those who have the fortune to return, they often find that um, it's not the same. That the place they left was a snapshot in time. And by the way, I I, kind of covered that in Forgiving Mariella Camacho which by the way is my favorite of my books and I highly recommend it. So I, I hope,
0: yes, I, I, I'm very tied into the, to the whole immigrant experience. Well, Alan, I could talk for hours about your books, um, but I'd rather your, people pick them up and read them and, and spend uh-huh. hours doing those. So Alan, is there a place where you, we can send people to pick up your books online?
1: Absolutely, everything's available on Amazon which is really the place we sell most of our books. You could also get them here uptown. WordUp has all my books. Um, in terms of uh, the Interpreter, it's available in e-copy. You can buy, you know, Kindle, Nook. It's also in paperback, and it was just released on Audible. If you if you like to listen to books. The Forgiving series is uh, on. E- it, it, it's available on Kindle and Nook, e-copies. It's also available on paperback. And the audibles for all three books, Forgiving Maxima Rothman, Forgiving Stephen Redmond, and Forgiving Mariella Camacho, will be available uh, starting probably in July and through the next couple of months. So by September, all of them should be available on Audible. Great. But they are available on e-copy now. Also, if you have a book group, and you want to um you want to read one of my books for your book group i provide a free book chat with you on zoom or you know things are opening up if you're local and you you want to get me to come over and you get a little you know Little Danish and some coffee. I'm happy to come over and talk with your group about my book, but I I do that free for book groups. I also that's do, wonderful. I do it for larger organizations too, but there's a little charge for that. Understood.
0: Uh, so and you also have a website as well, correct? Yes,
1: you can go to that's ajsidransky.com. That's a j s i d r a n s k y ycom
0: and my whole life story is there, Well, listeners, with my books. We'll we'll put that website up uh, on the description of this episode. Thank you. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Aaron, it was my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. Sure thing. Well, uh, it's wonderful to have Alan here joining me on this Artist Spotlight episode of In What Artworks On Air. It's where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast and Apple Podcasts. It really does help us and share it with some friends. Uh, Many thanks to 809 Restaurant and Lounge here at 112 Dykeman Street here in Inwood uh, for hosting us and to Hidesights.com for all their great uptown promotional support. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. You can support on air and all our programming by making a donation at inwoodartworks.nyc backslash donate. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council, and in part by a grant from NYC and Company Foundation with partial support from Manhattan Borough President, Gail Brewer on the top of Manhattan and the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air.